Genesis 39, and we're starting at verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand, and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph 
and gave him success in whatever he did. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy, that you have no sense of needing to Him, if you turn to Him in praise, He will be right there welcoming you with open arms. But go to Him when your need is desperate and when all other help is vain and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and the sound of a lock and barrel on the inside, bolting down. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. These words are found in the pages of a book written by C.S. Lewis after his wife's tragic death as a way of surviving what he referred to as the mad midnight moment. A grief observed is Lewis's honest reflection on the fundamental issues of life and death and faith in the midst of loss. Have you ever felt abandoned by God? Ever experienced feelings anything like what Lewis writes? Like God is there during the good times, but absent vacant in the bad. If you have ever felt this way, you are not alone. How do we make sense of such feelings? Is there any truth to them? If you are joining us for the first time this morning or you missed last Sunday... We have begun our third and final series in the book of Genesis, studying chapters 37 to 50. Last week we covered off chapter 37, where Joseph's brothers, whose hate kept spiralling out of control, betrayed their brother, Joseph, leaving him in a pit and then being taken to Egypt as a slave. We also saw Jacob, Joseph's father, sinking into a pit of despair and grief, over the loss of his son. Now, chapter 38 is a side story to the thrust of this narrative about Judah, one of Joseph's brothers, and Tamar. If chapter 39 offers us a picture of sexual integrity and an exemplary way to act in the face of temptation, chapter 38 is the polar opposite. There is a very good study on chapter 38 in your study guides, written by Valerie, and so I commend them to you and trust that we as a church will engage with chapter 8 via that method. But today we are moving on to chapter 39, which flows on from chapter 37 seamlessly. Chapter 37, 36 concludes, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. And chapter 39, verse 1, opens, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him 
from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Notice that Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Chapters 39 to 41 form a section where the narrative stays grounded in Egypt. There is no mention of Joseph's family, his father Jacob, or his brothers. The focus of chapters 39 to 41 is all about Joseph and his rise to power in the empire of Egypt. In particular, this part of the story, 39 to 41, is a period of testing in Joseph's life. The narrator raises the tension. How will Joseph fare in the face of an illicit sexual advance, a prison sentence, feeling forgotten and broken promises? God's leaders must undergo testing. It would seem that this is an essential part of the leadership journey. I can't think of any biblical leaders who sailed smoothly into their position. Think about it with me for a moment. God called Noah to build an ark. I'm sure Noah weathered ridicule and criticism by preparing for the forthcoming flood. And can you imagine witnessing the trauma of that event? All that loss of life. God called Abraham to leave his family, his livelihood, his inheritance, and follow God to an uncertain destiny. He was given a promise to be the father of nations, and yet he had to wait until he was 100 when his first son, Isaac, or his son who would carry on the promise, would be born. God called Moses to lead his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. Moses had been separated from his mother at birth. Later on in life, having witnessed the brutality of how his people were being treated, outraged at the injustice of seeing an Egyptian beat a Hebrew slave, Moses murdered this man and then flees to the wilderness where God speaks to him in a burning bush. As a fugitive on the run, God calls Moses to go and confront Pharaoh, the head of the Egyptians. Not once, but countless times, Moses had to confront Pharaoh as God continued to harden Pharaoh's heart. Is there testing and trial in the story of Moses? You bet there is. God sent Jesus, the Messiah, to show people in the flesh what God is like. Jesus died a brutally unjust death, taking on the punishment of all humanity's sin. And after Jesus' baptism, he was cast out into the desert for 40 days where he was tested by the evil one. God called Paul to be a missionary to the Gentiles, spreading the gospel message, planting churches and composing a significant portion of the New Testament. In Galatians 1.17, Paul himself speaks of his time in Arabia, the desert, after his Damascus Road experience, before his official ministry began. And of course, his apostleship was constantly being questioned and he suffered greatly for the sake of Christ. God puts his leaders to the test. 
Where does their trust ultimately lie? Is it with themselves, their position, their influence, their experience, their expertise? Or does their trust rest in the Almighty God? This seems to be the crux of it. And this was Joseph's test. And what a test it was. If Joseph was to be a leader of God's people, he had to show himself to be faithful to God. Joseph was only a young man, 17 or 18 years of age. His hormones and sexual drive would have been at full force. And let's think about it for a moment. If there was ever an occasion to play the victim and justify oneself, surely this was it. With all that had happened to him up to this point, Joseph had every reason to be bitter, angry, resentful, cynical, fearful, self-serving and self-pitying. And after all, he was a slave and this was an order Come to bed with me. It's less of a request and more of a demand. As we know, in spite of all the reasons Joseph could have used to justify gratifying his sexual needs with Potiphar's wife, he resists. He flees from temptation. What is interesting at this point is Joseph's theology of sin. In his speech, to Potiphar's wife, he responds to her advance, saying, how could I do such a wicked thing against God? Joseph correctly understood that all sin is against God. At this point, he doesn't seem as concerned about the implications of how this might affect Potiphar, but rather how this would stack up before a holy God, whom he knew he would one day give an account to. All sin, regardless of how little or large the impact on another person might be, is against God. Ultimately, it is he whom we will give an answer to. And even though no one else may have known about the affair, which is always highly unlikely, Joseph knew that God would have known. Joseph very wisely lived his life with an awareness of the presence of God. I think to live with such an understanding is a good way to keep a check on ourselves, especially in those moments when no one else is watching. So Joseph passes the test with flying colours. He acts with complete integrity and effectively embodies what so many of the Proverbs and wisdom literature teach and instruct about exercising integrity and wisdom in the face of sexual temptation. Joseph did the right thing. And how did it turn out for him? It landed him in a prison cell. Hang on, this doesn't seem right. Where is the justice in this? I wonder how Joseph was feeling. He had overcome the temptation. 
he had effectively passed the test and it lands him back in another pit. Now, before we rush ahead to the end of the story, I just invite you to sit in that reality with Joseph for a moment. Ever felt abandoned by God? Joseph is away from his family, his friends, all that is familiar. He's in a foreign land. He has now been accused of attempted rape and could have been stoned to death, which was the law for adultery in both Israel and Egypt. Is Joseph alone? Who will stand in his defence? He has no one. He has no one. The narrator leaves the reader feeling outraged at the injustice of this situation. And we are left wondering how this is all going to turn out for Joseph. Will the rise and fall theme continue in Joseph's life or will it finish here? This week I came across a word I was unfamiliar with which helpfully describes this passage. The word is ostensible, which means seeming or said to be true or real, but very possibly not true or real. So when we read Genesis 39, the ostensible agenda is sex, adultery, and overcoming temptation. As I mentioned earlier, we are compelled to look at Joseph's exemplary behaviour and we might wish to see this as an instructive text on how to handle sexual temptation and immorality. It would be easy to preach on what this passage teaches about sexual purity and make that the focus of the message. In fact, I did that very thing back in 2007, the title of the message being uncompromising in integrity. And whilst this is a valid message to preach, and I have no doubt that countless preachers over time uh, use this text as a study in how to come temptation, I now see that this is not what the author intended for us to see or focus on. We don't find any comments or instruction about going and doing likewise as Joseph did. As we, heard yes, as we heard last week, so much of Scripture is not to be read as follow the example of this person. <laughs> so much of Scripture is about allowing us to see the redemptive God moving and working, calling His people back to Himself, restoring all things to Himself. You see, the point of the text is not to highlight how good or how strong Joseph was at resisting temptation. The point of the text is to highlight that God, that the Lord, was with Joseph. Not one, not two, not three, but on four separate occasions in Genesis 39, the writer tells us that the Lord 
was with him. Right at the outset in verse 2, the narrator informs us that Joseph becomes successful not because of his innate wisdom or natural ability or good looks or excellent work ethic or physical strength. No, Joseph's success is credited 100% to the fact that the Lord was with him. The theme of the Lord's presence with Joseph reaches all the way back to God's covenant with Abraham in chapter 17, verses 7 to 8. And the theme of the Lord blessing Joseph and through him the Egyptian's house stretches all the way back to God's original plan and promise to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, in chapter 12, verse 3. And this is the thread that weaves its way through the story of Genesis and indeed the entire story of Scripture. And this brings the focus back squarely where it needs to be, on God and his great plan to redeem and to restore humanity to himself. God is fulfilling his promise to be with his chosen people and to bless all nations through them. The message of Genesis 39 is that God was with Joseph in prosperity and adversity. The author's original intention, therefore, was to assure Israel of God's presence with them through prosperity and through adversity. The message to us today is the same, that God's presence is always with his people. God's presence is always with you through the good times and through the hard times. There are times in our lives when our circumstances will cause us to potentially question God's existence, His presence or His intention. We may feel angry with God, abandoned by God or disappointed with God. I think it would be entirely understandable had Joseph entertained some, if not all, of these feelings when he was in the pit for the second time. Yet in spite of how Joseph feels or felt, the author makes it abundantly clear on four occasions that God was with him. This grand and reassuring theme just drips from the pages of Scripture. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Is that not the Lord 
will be with you in prosperity and adversity. The Gospel of Matthew in the first chapter, verse 22 and 23, opens with these words, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew's Gospel closes with these words, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Is that not God will be present in both prosperity and adversity? I love what Old Testament theologian Walter Brueggemann writes about Joseph's story. This narrative assumes an essential compatibility between experience of Yahweh and experience of life. It has in mind a kind of humanity which fully relies on God and fully engages the human experience. How good is that? Whatever situation you find yourself in, may it be prosperous or adverse, may you, my friend, my brother or sister in Christ, know that God is with you. May you learn to live and engage in the future and present reality of whatever life throws at you, confident, settled, assured that you are not alone, that God has not forgotten you, that Yahweh goes with you, that Jesus will never leave, will never forsake, will never abandon you, because he promises you in his word that he is with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. O great and holy present one, We come into your presence, which is made readily available by your Spirit through the Son. And we thank you for the wondrous truth and promise found all over the pages of Scripture that you will never walk out, that you will never leave, that you will never abandon that you will never forsake those whose trust is in you. We stand or we sit in awe of who you are, of all that you have done and continue to do. For your name's sake, may our lives tell the story of your redemptive love and grace and mercy and compassion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.